Today's guest is an extraordinary woman. She has survived childhood sexual abuse, rape, and domestic violence, and now supports other women who have experienced trauma or abuse. She is courageous and open and willing to talk about subjects and experiences that are often kept hidden. And hearing her share about her journey from trauma to healing is incredibly inspiring. This conversation goes deep. And whether you choose to consume it in a few sessions or all at once, you will find a lot to think about and learn from. I know I did. So fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia jalacor Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia jalacor Rude. Today, I am super excited to bring this guest on the show. Alba Soto is a positive and resilient trauma survivor. As a certified trauma life coach, she helps single mothers get unstuck by applying her unique principles of active healing. Because through her own personal lived experience, she learned that without tools, trauma rules. These tools that she shares facilitate active healing and help women find their voices and reclaim their power. Welcome to the show, Alba. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so, so excited to be here. So excited. Oh, it's great. I, I was so glad that we found each other because as soon as I you know, learned a little bit about what your background was and what you do now in the world, it was just an instant, oh my gosh, I got to talk to her. I, I could not agree more. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great, like instantaneous connection. And I think that our listeners are going to understand why pretty darn quick. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get into the the nitty gritty of your history and your journey and what you are doing now, I like to start with some sort of quick and easy questions just to get us in the flow. So are you ready for that? Yes, I am. Throw them at me. Okay. What is your favorite time of year? Springtime. I I love spring flowers blossoming. Yeah, spring. And is that in part because of where you live? Yeah, <laughs> I live in Massachusetts. So over here, the winter is pretty brutal in the sense that there's just not much sunshine and and all that. It's just the cold. I come from Dominican Republic, so I like the warm weather. So coming to Massachusetts, it was definitely a little bit of a, a shock with the winter. So I still haven't gotten used to it. So for me, I prefer the warmer months. And then, of course, after having naked trees where they look like they died, and then when they come back to life, it's, it's always it's always a pleasure to see them come back to life. Oh, resurrection of sorts. Yes. If you could change places with anyone, who would that be and why them? Mm. I would switch places with my younger self. And the reason for that is because if I was able to, it, like, in, knowing what I know now, 
I would want to be able to tell my younger self that everything is going to be okay. And just to, to just validate like all the strength and the resilience and, and all the things that I, I just wish I had somebody to tell me those things. So I just wish that I could go back to my younger self and just know that, have that sense of knowing that everything was going to be okay. I don't think you're alone at all in that desire. I think uh, that would be something that I would want to do also. I'm thinking not just in my my youth, but you know, even a couple of points in the last decade or so, it would have been very boring to have known from the Cynthia of the future. Mm-hmm. It's going to get through it. So what is your favorite self-care practice? My favorite self-care practice is getting up early in the morning. I wake up at four in the morning and I just have some me time. And I didn't realize how beneficial it was to have just quiet time. (laughs) And as a mom of four, it is so necessary to just have time to be my own creative self and just be able to have what I consider a miracle morning, which I was like just spending some time with myself and and setting the intention for the day, which is very nice. That's awesome. I have four kids myself, and I remember when mine were kind of in the age range that yours are younger kids that I desperately needed quiet time, but I could never drag myself out of bed in the morning to do that. So I would end up staying up super late. So it would be, you know, once all the kids are in bed, then it's mommy time. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really admire people who can get that in in the, in the beginning of the day, because I think it's such a wonderful way to begin the life of the day is with exactly quiet for yourself. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested that you would change places with yourself when you were younger because one of the questions I like to ask women who come on the show as guests is what is your advice to young women in their 20s that you wish you'd known when you were that age? It kind of goes right along with your previous answer. Exactly. So what I would say is find yourself, discover yourself, right? Don't be so consumed in what other people require from you or need from you. Take some time to discover what do you need? What do you, it's like, I have these three questions. It's like, who are you? Whose are you? And who are you called to be? And those three questions are so important. And the sooner we can figure that out, the sooner we begin to live. Those are really interesting questions. How do young women discover who they are, number one? Mm. I would say the, the first part is really turning up the volume of your inner voice and turning down the volume of the distraction. So in life, oftentimes we try to break that inner voice by listening to all of these voices on the outside. So whether it's phone a friend, whether it's turn up the music and do all of these things, stay busy, check off all the boxes, you know, so many times we're too busy focusing on the outside that we don't necessarily allow that inner voice to truly, you know, be heard. 
So it's just really about turning up the volume of the inner voice and allowing yourself to feel what that inner voice is telling you. And sometimes the inner voice is not the most nicest voice, right? But trying to figure out why or trying to kind of discover like, where is this inner voice coming from and where is it telling me to go? Because I can give advice to other people. Why can't I begin to give myself advice? Why can't I begin to listen to my purpose? What, what is my calling? So I would say first is, is spending time with yourself and increasing the volume of the inner voice. Mm, oh, that I love that. And that, that can be so challenging because sort of the flip side of listening to that voice is kind of fear of what it's actually going to tell you. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. And then I, I can understand like who do you want to be or, or what are you being called to be? Mm-hmm. That means to me. Can you talk a little bit about the second question? Whose are you? So it's really about having a sense of, for me personally, it has a lot to do with our spiritual connection and figuring out like, what does love look like? that doesn't come from a from a human being because as humans we make mistakes as humans we we take as humans we hurt as humans you know we we do things and and it's really trying to figure out what like i belong to a greater power that is bigger than my suffering that is bigger than anything a human being could do to me and trying to identify that as the the foundation or the the basis for how we gauge like who we are and 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 the love that we deserve like i am worthy of a love that is greater than anything that someone else can take from me and that's very different for different people as well because i'm very respectful of everyone's different you know choices and and spiritual paths for me it's been christianity but it's different for each person and it's really about the connection, whether it's to universal, to the universe or to, to God or, or whatever it is, but it's simply understanding that there's a greater power bigger than me. And, and I am an extension of that. Therefore I'm worthy. Yeah. I love that. And I think that that sense of not belonging to something greater than one's own like immediate environment and the, and sort of the human beings in your life is something that makes us feel so hopeless and isolated yes. because you know our world is so bounded and our context is so small so that makes a lot of sense to me that's a great connection to make mm-hmm. so what's the most difficult decision you've ever had to make and what was your process for making it mm-hmm. I'll say to surrender. Surrender has been, now mind you, this is a lifelong decision because once you're on the path, you realize the power of surrendering. You've resisted for a very long time, but nonetheless, it's, it's really powerful. So I would say that the word surrender comes up and I can give multiple examples as to like when I was in situations, but the first time that I was in a situation where I, I I had to surrender was actually in my relationship. So, and it's my relationship with my now husband. So with my trauma that I experienced as a child, 
um, I was molested by a family member as a child and the, the image of my abuser was the same image, meaning fit the same image of my husband. And I was ready to walk away from this man because of my, because I was triggered because of my trauma. And in those moments, like anytime he would get close, I would, you know, stiff arm him and just put my arm up. Oh, nope. Stand away. Get away. Um, and not really give him an opportunity to, to get close enough to me for me to experience that level of, of love that we have today. And in a very chaotic time that I was in, I allowed him close enough because I was letting my walls down. I allowed him close enough that I was able to feel this sense of peace when I was around him. And when I was thinking about running away, <laughs> which was kind of like my goal to, to just run away from, from, from the problems that I was experiencing, which were definitely a result of, you know, my trauma and then poor decision-making in terms of relationships and just really feeling taken advantage of. I just wanted to run away. Instead, I chose to surrender, surrender to this, this feeling of peace that I felt with my husband. And since then, it's been a journey that I have begun to, like I'm living again. I'm living in a situation where I'm confronted with my memories and I am able to put it in check. I'm able to like do things with fear, but find my voice again because I'm able to express when I'm triggered. I'm able to express when I'm feeling uncomfortable and I'm able to be heard and validated in ways that I've always wanted and yearned for. And this entire relationship still to this day, if I'm feeling triggered, triggered I'm able to say, I feel uncomfortable right now and I'm able to be heard. Um, and that has been really, really powerful for me in terms of my journey with my healing. And that was just one example of when I surrendered, but I've surrendered in many other instances. And I find that the moment that I surrender is when I begin to live. And it feels like surrendering. I was just like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to give up. I don't want to lose control. I don't want to, I don't want to do that because it means that I'm losing control of the situation, but it actually meant the total opposite. And I, it's been very miraculous for me to be able to experience multiple scenarios where I'm just like, you know what, I'm just going to surrender. I'm just going to let go of any idea that I have of what the outcome is going to be. And I'm going to put myself in a situation where I'm totally like open to, to being vulnerable and, and, and healing. And that's when I begin to breathe again. That's when I begin to live again. And it just, it feels, it feels very powerful. So, yeah. Oh, wow. It, it truly is. And I, I understand that, you know, there was sort of the original choice to kind of give it a try, but then, mm -hmm the benefits have been so great that it's become something that you're more willing to do over and over and over again. And that every time something new opens up that wouldn't have otherwise. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and, and what was your family life like? 
So I'll start. I came from the Dominican Republic. I was there until I was five years old. I was living with my mother and my older brother. And at the age of five, I came to America. Me and my brother came here with my dad. Now, my father, he wasn't there when I was born. He actually came to America when, my, when I was in my mom's um, stomach. So I was, she was about three months pregnant with me when my dad came to America. And I hadn't met my father up until when he came to, to go and get me when I was five. And the interesting part about that was, which is it was not interesting, it's just not surprising. The moment I saw my dad, I was like instantly in love. It was like love at first sight. And I was just like all over him. Meanwhile, he was, he was practically a stranger to me because I didn't know the man, right? I never actually saw him. And I was actually just journaling this the other day and remembering when he came and, and, and got me. And the reason why I was so madly in love with my father was because he was my savior. He was my protector. Because prior to that, I was getting molested very regularly um, by multiple people in my family. And him coming and taking me, uprooting me from Dominican Republic and bringing me to America meant that I no longer had to endure that abuse. And I'm assuming that he had no idea that that was going on. Um, I'm assuming so also, but there are, well, yes, he didn't because he was in America at the time. And it was a situation where what was happening, it was happening in the family and it was happening so often and to so many different people with, with, with time, I was able to kind of grasp like the details of everything. Cause at five years old, what do I know? I don't know anything. Right. So later on, I was able to recognize kind of like the gravity of the situation and how frequent it was happening and to how many people, which made me come to the conclusion that people knew about it, that people must have known about it. But I think what happened was, is that to keep the family name, you know, to kind of preserve this, 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 this dark secret to kind of keep the family name clean or so. It wasn't something that was really spoken of or or called out. Um, so I'm assuming that my dad did not know at that time that what what was going on. Yeah, yeah, but it sounds as though it was really just the family culture. It seems so. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that such a little child had had so many of those experiences already by the age of five. Yeah. I actually, in, in journaling the other day, what happened was, is that I, I, I was journaling these, these memories and it was not only the being uprooted with my father being present and, and, you know, me seeing him as the savior, but then it was when the abuser started coming to America and now I was confronted with the memories coming back to me for the first time, because for a while I forgot about what had happened. And I, I was a normal child. I had this shine about me. I had this, this innocence about me that I was able to kind of gain in those four years between when I came to America and then when I was first encountered with 
my my trigger or my memory. And things really like it was like a part of my spirit died at that time, right? And it was a situation where I blog about it and I and you know I was able to kind of let it out in writing and I've journaled about it before, but for the first time in my entire life, I was able to feel what that child felt and I was able to cry about it for the first time. And this was just recently. Um, and it was very powerful. It was very, very powerful to be able to acknowledge and recognize that the experiences that this child was feeling and really trying to kind of be strong and trying to like just push through all of these things and especially trying to hold back that secret because you can't talk about it. So if you can't talk about it, you absolutely can't cry about it because nobody knows what are you crying about? Right. So you were nine when sort of this second free life kind of got cut short by a family member coming to visit. And if you couldn't talk about it, you couldn't really, you know, show any emotion about sort of the resurgence of the memories of what had happened prior to you leaving the Dominican Republic. Like, how did you cope with that? I mean, age, age nine is not a mature little being either. You know, age nine is, is a difficult stage for many kids because there's a whole lot of shifts that happen mentally, emotionally, psychological at that age. So how, how did you actually navigate through that when, you know, to, from your perspective as a child, like the horrible time had come to an end, you escaped, you were free, you had this new life that was all wonderful. And then all of a sudden, oh, hey, guess what? No, you know, here comes, here comes all the reminders. So how did you, how did you navigate through that at such a young age then? Well, it most certainly wasn't easy. It started with shame and the shame quickly turned to guilt. Um, when I was first confronted with my abuser, it was a difficult thing because for my culture, the Dominican culture, we, we, when you meet somebody that is an elder or, or a person in your family, you have to greet them with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And you also have to say goodbye to them with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And um, I had to embrace my abuser um, as if it never happened. And it was very, very difficult to be in his embrace, knowing that my body was not okay. Like my body was experiencing something that my mind couldn't conceptualize at the time because I couldn't even remember anything in the moment. I just knew that my body was just not my own. It was like, I, I, I was back there again. And instantly I felt naked. I felt exposed and no one seemed to notice that something switched in me. So my initial instinct in the moment was to excuse myself and just leave. But of course, then it's time for him to go again. So I have to come back and give him a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And I remember that night was when I first started having flashbacks when I went to sleep. 
was difficult for me to go to sleep that night just because I was not in a good space. But eventually when I did go to sleep, I started having flashbacks and it was like picture, picture, picture. It wasn't clear to me, you know, everything that had happened, but I was able to see enough that I was able to understand why my body was reacting the way it was reacting when I saw his face. And I woke up in a panic. And in that moment, there was this level of confusion that I experienced because not only did I feel like, okay, that makes sense. That's why that happened. But now I did this. I have to come to the the come to terms with the fact that this is something that I was involved in. And I know that that's wrong. I'm old enough to understand that that's wrong, but now I'm involved in this. So this, this is something that I did wrong. And the other aspect has to do with this feeling that I was having, this feeling of desire that I had. And that's what ultimately led to one of my coping skills, which I now classify as an addiction because it was just simply something that I was using to help to soothe this feeling that I had, which in, in my adult mind, I'm able to conceptualize and understand what that is. But in that moment, I couldn't really understand. But it became that I would use self soothing behavior. So I started masturbating at around that time. And it was a cycle where I would feel shame. I would feel guilty. So then I needed, and I, and I would feel like my body was out of control. Like my body was not my body. I started, you know, having these symptoms of the trauma and then I would masturbate and then I would hear that voice in my head saying, see, it is your fault. You did deserve it because look at what you're doing. You deserve that. And then I would do it all over again. And it only fed that inner negative voice in my mind that made the guilt even bigger and bigger and bigger. And it wasn't until um, I discovered school could be my outlet because I had this this other addiction. It was my first my first addiction, which was people pleasing behaviors. And it happened when I when I met my dad, and I just wanted to 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 see to to be viewed as a good girl. So I just wanted to do anything and everything he asked me to do. Right. So I had already that people pleasing behavior, and now when you add school into that, I was able to excel at school because I I just wanted to please my teacher. And luckily I had some pretty amazing teachers that were able to life into me. And that ended up being my drug of choice. So I was able to escape from this sexual cycle and focus on school. And that became like my drug of choice over that because it made me feel better about myself. And it also didn't have this guilt that was constantly growing and growing and growing. The um, self-soothing behaviors didn't go away completely, but it definitely was more so under control. 
because I had another drug of choice to be able to cope with this trauma that I was experiencing. Oh, that makes so much sense to kind of hear you lay it out that way. And what kind of comes up in my mind right now is what you're really talking about is like, this is the effect of sexualizing a very young child. And in your case, it wasn't just that you were being treated as a sexual object. You were actually engaged in that activity at such a young age that you couldn't even make sense of it. But here in our culture, we have this whole drive, especially with little girls, of sexualizing little girls and introducing things to them at younger and younger and younger ages and sort of assuming that they can handle it, you know, that it's normal. Or I mean, some people even preach that it's good for them. And you know, your lived experience is just a resounding, hell no, you know, a, a young child, if she experiences something that sexualizes her at a very young age, really cannot make sense of it and ends up having to go through all these other things trying to figure out what the hell do I do with this? Like it, it's not age appropriate. It's not developmentally appropriate. I don't even have the tools to make sense of it or to cope with it. And it makes so much sense to me that you went into self-soothing and and also that like school and people pleasing became like another way of just sort of dealing with all of the emotions and and the physical feelings that were coming up. Yeah. Have you, um, like, what are your thoughts on what's happening just in terms of the culture with sexualizing little girls? So that's, that's, that's a whole nother beast because the amount of sexual exploitation that is happening globally on a global scale and the, the media, the just everything, everything. It's very, very, very scary. It's a very scary world that we live in. And for me, knowing that I've lived that and I've experienced that, right? I am hypervigilant to a fault because at the age when my daughter came of age and of age is when it happened to me, right? And that's not okay, right? It's not okay for me to sexualize my daughter when she becomes the age that I was assaulted. That's that's pretty pretty bad. So the Reality is, is that the the trauma that I experienced made me inadvertently hypersexualize my own child by putting myself into her movie and fearing that the same thing would happen to her, which in essence, energetically, spiritually, like affirmatively, like thought-wise, I'm calling something to happen that is horrible not in a way that i want it to happen obviously i i want the opposite right i want my child to be safe to feel protected but in a way that i am overprotecting and i'm over sexualizing my child and and putting scenarios in my head replaying scenarios in my head but instead of me i have my 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 daughter's face which makes it so 
it is not healthy. It's not healthy for my daughter. Right. And I think that that's in essence what I realize from my perspective. But in terms of a global scale, what is happening, it's very sad. It's very, very sad the way, whether it's, you know, you think about, you know, dance, right? You, you put your child in dance and what are they wearing? What, what are these dances, right? And so many parents are like, oh, that's so cute. Let's take a video. And then you posted a video on, on, on social media, but not everybody has that same innocence in there and in, in why they seek these things, right? So in me, having kind of like what I would call a sixth sense for someone who, who is a predator or who, you know, that, that look, I have, I, I have that sense. I can, I can feel the vibe. So I know that those people exist in the world and that there are lots of them out there in the world. So when I, when I see parents like putting their children out there or the, the music that we're listening to or allowing our kids to listen to, or even the things that they watch on, on cartoons, right? Even, even in cartoons, it, it's, it just really, I just, I think it's sad. I think it's sad because we don't even realize how dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the scary part. I think if we knew how dangerous it was, if we knew that people had the capacity to do some of these atrocious things, then we would think twice about giving our child a cell phone, you know, at an early age where they have access to all of these things. And I'm not saying that there's no right or wrong way to parent because I know that even the way I parent, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm naming a shortcoming of wanting to protect my child to a fault, right? It's like, I am overprotective in a way that is not healthy for my child because I am now putting her in my, I'm putting her in my movie. And that's not fair to her and her growth and development. I had to come to that realization through my healing journey. Well, that is one of the gifts of having a child is that those those parts of us, the dark parts that we haven't healed actually do get the light shone on them so that we yes. <laughs> can heal them. Um, but I think one of the things that, that you're bringing up though is like people are pretty naive and ignorant and assume that if there are predators out there who want to target children, that they're, they're like the boogeyman out there and they never think about the fact that it can actually be somebody right in the family that the child is exposed to all the time. Exactly. And the other couple things that came up was you, know, you were talking about how basically a hug and a kiss is a mandatory way to greet and say goodbye to somebody in that culture. And I know that in the last maybe five or 10 years, there's definitely been a shift in the narrative over here with parents telling their kids now, like, if you're not comfortable with that, you don't have to hug somebody. You don't have to do that. I don't think that's a common practice yet. But looking back at my kids, I don't think I ever required one of my children to hug or embrace anybody you know they was like hey say hello <laughs> but that kind of physical contact was never something I required and it's something that it can be so innocent but parents don't even think about that it, it may have a, a flip side to it like what you experienced exactly 
So I think that for me, it's, it's, it's very much, I'm, I'm breaking that tradition, right? I am of the generation that says, do what feels comfortable. And it's a situation where I can think, you know, at my culture, think back and see, you know, how they do things and why they do it. And I can forgive for not knowing better, right? Because I feel like when you know better, you do better. So in that instance, I don't necessarily have anyone to blame in that situation for being kind of what I would consider a, a slave to habit, right? It's like there was this this tradition and there's this habit and you just, that's just what you do. And no one really questions it. No one really, you know, goes against the grain. So for me, I'm in that generation where, again, I'm going to do anything to protect not only my children's ability to make a choice about what is and what isn't comfortable, but we're going to absolutely have some of those conversations about your, your mental health and well-being. How are you feeling? Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling uncomfortable? Does this person make you feel like, how do you feel, right? We're going to talk about feelings. So I made talking about feelings in my house, something that's very, very normal, which I think is very important because that's something that I didn't have growing up was the ability to just share, like, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing is that what you experienced is such a gross violation of boundaries, physical, mental, emotional boundaries. And I imagine that that has been part of what you have worked through is is the whole area of like what are boundaries what ones are healthy boundaries what do you do when people transgress them can you talk a little bit about that <laughs> i have a quote boundaries is the distance by which i can love you and me simultaneously and yeah i like that yeah it is a situation in which navigating through my healing, I have been in situations where I have been questioned or even made to, to, to doubt or to worry about coming out and telling the truth, right? Because of what it does in terms of like the family and, and people always have a way of injecting themselves into your movie and making it about them, right? So it's a situation in which I had to turn down those voices on the outside that are making me think like, so for example, my, my, my first accuser, he, my first memory of my, uh, my accuser, my first abuser, <laughs> the memory of my initial sexual trauma happens to be someone who passed away. And it makes me think, like, what are they going to say? Like, oh, you're, you're tarnishing his memory or, you know, all of these things come to mind. Like, you shouldn't say this about this person because everyone's going to come to this person's defense because someone who's dead can't do anything wrong, right? Someone who's dead, you, you, you talk about all of the great, wonderful things that this person did. But in all actuality, it isn't that way. And what I needed to do in, 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 in the process of, of my healing was when I found out that this person passed away, I had to 
go through my own grieving process away from the funeral because I needed to have my inner child be present and say what she needed to say. Because if I went to the funeral feeling what I was feeling, I was going to go up there and make a fool out of myself. (laughs) I was going to go tell the whole congregation what this person had done to me. And it would not have been the most appropriate use of, of my words. And it also would have been something that the whole family would have been up in arms about. So for me, some of the ways in which I have been protecting myself in terms of having healthy boundaries is understanding that while I'm on this journey, I have to turn down their voices. I have to be very clear in what my voice is telling me that is okay. And right now, what I'm getting confirmation about is my inner child needs to speak her piece and she needs to let out what she's been holding back for so long in order for me to help liberate others. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So many things come to mind just, just listening to your process. It's, it's so valuable and it's, it's such, and I, I really appreciate how transparent you are because this is not something that I have had personal experience with. Unfortunately, I know other women who have, and I know it's really difficult to be transparent about these these kinds of things, especially the like what it takes to actually move through the healing process. Because I'm sure that's a very individual process for each person, kind of depending on what their experience was with their culture and their family and the current life situation is. But I love what you're up to. And I think that the experiences that you had and the fact that you've had to do this introspection and really honor that inner voice, that is so important. And it makes so much sense now that that was what your answer was <laughs> way back at the beginning, you know, about, about your advice was to really listen to that inner voice. Mm-hmm. That's huge. I, I'm curious, like, so, so you had this experience as a child and had all of these sort of coping mechanisms and, and ways to kind of get through your childhood despite this. What was life like as an adolescent or a young adult? Like, did you find that there were repercussions from that experience that you had had as a child? And I, I remember that you had mentioned sexual assault and domestic violence when we when we spoke initially. I'm curious, like, what the path was? Do you how did that all unfold? And do you think that what you experienced as a child sort of set you up for other situations where your boundaries weren't respected and where you didn't really listen to that inner voice? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So as an adolescent, my self-esteem was non-existent. And I had relied on my external like people pleasing like the accolades I would get from that as what how I saw value in myself 
So you put me into a, in an adolescent body and then you add these memories of my trauma, which tells me that this act or these experiences that you had, you are to blame. Like you did this, right? It's just a perfect storm for what I ended up experiencing at the moment, which was that of what I would consider like promiscuity, right? And it has to do with getting positive attention from males. And then ultimately having my, my thoughts were way far ahead of what my body could actually handle. So my thoughts were telling me that I was ready for something that I wasn't. And in, in having those thoughts just constantly and more frequently coming back to me, I put myself in a situation where I was asking for it, literally asking for it. And then when it happened, it was that shock again, it's that shock factor, like, I'm so uncomfortable. Why am I here? But not having a voice to say no and not really being able to process like what it all means. But at the, at the same time, feeling as if you asked for this. So it's like that inner voice was very much in control. And, and it's the inner voice of the trauma. It's that inner voice of the guilt and the shame was what was driving the car at that time. And so what actually happened? So um, many situations that I got myself into, which from my family's perspective, it was as if like, what are you doing? Like, and, and I would get caught in situations where it's like, it's almost like, now I'm going to say it this way. And this is not literally what it was. It's like being caught with your pants down. Like, what are you doing? Right. And you feel this sense of like, oh my gosh, like I, I, I did this. And it validates that I'm a bad person. So again, it's like, it, it's back to like that self-soothing behavior where you have something that is, you think that this is helping you gain control of this feeling out of control, but ultimately it brings you more shame. And it doesn't even provide you with this level of like, like it, it, it just didn't feel right. So that was the adolescent phase. And moving forward, what, what it did to me was it, it further made me think like I needed to get validation from a man. I needed to get this sense of value from a man. And you can't say no because this is just what you're supposed to do. This is, this is like what you were made to do. So you can't say no. So it allowed me to be in situations as an adult where I'm consenting and being a part of very much powerless situations where I'm feeling powerless, I'm feeling violated, but I'm consenting to this because now I'm in a relationship with a narcissist. Because now I'm in a relationship with somebody who abused me. I can see how that all tied together. 
and it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it's the it's the paradigm, you know, that paradigm got established so young. It makes total sense to me that that's kind of the organizing principle <laughs> of, of how you make the choices and who you gravitate towards. So I'm curious, like, given that that was sort of the ocean that you were swimming in, and that was that was the paradigm that you were living with. How on earth did you get out of that? Um, I don't even know because in in many ways, each circumstance, each difficult situation that I was in had its positive moments, had its awakenings, had its, it's it, like, it was necessary to bring me to the next phase or the next stage of my healing. In the moment, you don't realize that, right? So I'm, I'm, I am right now able to see from like the bird's eye view and recognize, you know, the purpose and the, 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 um, it's not even the, the, the necessity of it. It's not that it needed to happen, but each thing allowed me to go deeper into myself, have it be suffering, have it be, you know, Again, like that self-destructive to the point where it totally shakes your world to the point where there's nothing but up from here, right? You find yourself at rock bottom where it's like you have to get up, right? And in some ways, some of the ways in which I got out of it, yeah, I actually know how I got out of it. So the narcissistic relationship that I was in was with the father of my two first beautiful children. And it wasn't looking at their eyes. And recognizing that they deserve better than to see their mom crying and feeling broken and not shining for them. And it was in those moments that I was able to gain the courage to say, you know what? They deserve better. I didn't think I deserve better. Mm -hmm. I thought they deserve better. And from there, I found myself in another situation with another relationship that ended up turning into domestic violence. There were lots of flags, but in all those flags, each time I wanted to kind of take a step back because I'm very reflective. That was another thing that saved me a lot is that I was able to reflect, refine, and then hit the refresh button. And when I hit the refresh button, I had a whole different outlook. I, I could see clearer because I was able to, to think and analyze and process. So with this person who was also a narcissist, it was a situation where there was this need to like suffocate me with whatever so that I couldn't breathe, so that I couldn't see for myself, so that I couldn't think for myself, so that I couldn't be in that reflective phase. So anytime I would be like, something's off here. I'm like, I need a vacation. I need something. I need to get away. I need something because I can't breathe here. Something's telling me it's off, but I can't have enough quiet time to really understand what is going on. And in that entire relationship, with which lasted a year, I felt suffocated the entire time. 
And I was like, oh, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to go visit my mom in Mexico. And during that vacation was actually a moment where I felt this level of hopelessness in my life because I had been struggling for so long. I was, I was fighting and I was fighting and I was fighting. And my mom was also experiencing something similar, this level of hopelessness where she just didn't want to keep going anymore. And we were each other's saving grace. And I remember she said to me, she was like, I feel like I am in Cuba, like, I, like I'm swimming from Cuba to Florida and I'm trying to seek refuge. I'm, I'm leaving and I'm this, this war zone and I'm trying to seek refuge and I'm swimming across the ocean. And I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean and there's no land in sight. And I can't keep swimming. I'm so tired. I can't do this anymore. I'm just so tired. I can't. My arms are tired. I can't breathe. Like I'm done. And I said to my mom, I said, Mommy, the ocean has salt water. There's buoyancy. Why won't you just float? catch your breath, and then keep going. And those words that I said to her really resonated for me because that's exactly what I needed to do. I needed to stop for a second, catch my breath, and then continue to live because giving up was not an option. And as a mom, I think we're oftentimes confronted with that level of hopelessness, but we, but we can't give up because we have these children. And it doesn't necessarily make it easier, meaning, well, it's obvious, just, just live, you know, live for something else other than yourself. It actually makes it kind of unfair because we're not allowed to feel hopeless. We're not allowed to be true to our feelings. Like I, I, I don't want to do this right now. And it wasn't until years later where I had a friend who I was working with who, who took her life and she had two children and I was angry. I was angry with her. I said, how dare you take your life when you have, you know, these two beautiful children and they already lost their father. And I had to speed past all of the phases of grief and remember when I was at that level of hopelessness, when my mother was at that level of hopelessness. And I had to understand that she must have had that thought many, 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 many times prior to that moment. And it just so happened that in that moment, the burden was too heavy for her to carry. And she didn't have that insight in terms of that inner voice telling her to float, catch your breath, and then keep swimming. And that's all I, that's all my mom needed to hear. But what if I wasn't there to tell her that? That feeling of hopelessness is very real. And having to, to continue swimming or having to continue to, to, to move forward despite because of someone else, it's not quite a true reflection of how we feel. And healing is about feeling our feelings, not avoiding our feelings. And I had to just recognize that there is 
that it's okay to feel our feelings and it's okay to pause, take that breath and then keep on swimming. Now, I'm not a therapist and I have a therapist that I see every week. So I'm by no means, you know, minimizing, you know, the the suicide, suicidal ideation or, or suicidal thoughts or anything of that sort at all. I think anyone who's experiencing that should absolutely, absolutely get professional help. And when I was at that moment, I'm just sharing from my personal experience how my mother and I, we were able to kind of overcome that. And then my experience that I had with that friend just put it all into perspective because I was able to recall that feeling of like, I'm tired of fighting. Like imagine getting up every day and just feeling like every day is a fight. And then your arms are tired. You're trying to, you know, and that was what I can imagine a person feeling. And that was what I was feeling in that moment. So for me, I don't even think I remember the question, but the, the reality of what that internal suffering can do to a person is the reason why I, as a, as a nurse that works in addictions, I can understand why addiction saves more lives than it takes. And the reason why I say it saves more lives than it takes is because oftentimes someone whose gateway drug is actually trauma and not anything else, that internal suffering that they feel, they simply want to numb that pain, numb that suffering. And you wouldn't tell somebody who has a headache, don't take a Tylenol, don't take, you know, something for your hip pain, simply that internal suffering that nobody can see, that no one else can, can, can conceptualize, that is the gateway drug that oftentimes leads to addictive patterns. And that coping skill, for example, for me, call it self-soothing behaviors, call it people-pleasing behaviors, add anything, call it sex, call it you can add, you can fill in the blank with just about anything, food, alcohol, all of those things are simply something to numb the pain until that person is able to process and, and, and conceptualize the trauma and be able to embark on the healing journey. But what the addiction does, it allows them to live another day. Wow, this is really deep. I'm definitely going to have to sit with this for quite a while to process all of the things that are bubbling up because so much of it just a hundred percent resonates with me. I mean, I I have never gotten into addiction and I haven't suffered the same kind of trauma that you are talking about, but I have definitely experienced those moments of pure hopelessness and feeling like every single inner resource I have is now gone because it's all been used up and I just, I don't even have the strength to float. So I have definitely experienced those things and, and your insights about how that affects us are right on. I'm, I'm so grateful that you've shared that. And I think what I would like to do is I'd like to know kind of how you've 
how are you taking what your lived experience has been and these amazing insights that come from that? What are you doing with that now to help single mothers? And like, what kinds of insights and tips are you giving them? Well, my favorite tip is recognizing the greatness that is within all of us. I am not a savior. I am not, you know, this magic pill. In all actuality, everyone has their own savior from within them. And the the beauty of what I do is not having all the answers, but asking all of the right questions. And these questions allow the person to share their own insight, strength, resilience, all of those things. And I'm simply there to give it back to them in a form of a bouquet and say, you had all of this inside of you already. I love that. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I I do it all the time. I, it's, it's usually a, a part of every single session that I have. Um, but it's really about calling on the strengths that allowed the person to live up until now, like you have successfully overcome all of this. How did you do it? How did you manage to do that? And providing that validation. And even in knowing that, so for example, let's say something is considered a negative coping skill, right? Let's say avoidance or or shutting down, right? So you are the type that because you were abandoned, you shut down and before you allow somebody to hurt you, you're just going to push them away, right? That's something that's currently happening. And guess what? It is what it is because it has allowed you to survive thus far. Like being able to validate that, like you've done great so far by using this skill, this coping skill to be able to survive up until now. And when you're ready, you can transform that and engage in healthy and reciprocal relationships by being able to love yourself enough to know that you are worthy of being in a relationship with somebody that doesn't take away your power. And when you know that, there's no need to avoid anybody. You don't have to cut someone off before they hurt you because you're only going to accept positive and reciprocal relationships. And that's the difference. But it's when you're ready. And I just let them think about it. Just think about it. Oh, this is super powerful because one of the greatest fears that I hear working with women who have experienced domestic violence is like they don't trust themselves because they view their choice in the past that led to that situation as being, quote, a mistake. And they're deathly terrified of making the same mistake again. And, you know, what you're talking about is, it's very similar to something that we talk about in the self-defense world too, which is like, nobody survives wrong. Mm -hmm. In fact, today is like, you did the things that were necessary to get you through to here. So yay, <laughs> let's celebrate that instead of you feeling guilty that you you should have done it differently or it shouldn't even have happened in the first place. And there's so much parallel right there. But I think if I could take 
that answer of yours and hand it to every single woman that I've spoken to who has this fear about, you know, am I ever going to be able to be in a healthy relationship in the future? I I would just hand that little snippet right to them and say, listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can. (laughs) Yes, you can. And you're reminding me that some of the other guests that I've had on who have experienced some pretty terrible trauma in their lives have basically said similar things that like what has happened to you in the past does not have to continue to define you going forward. And I'm curious, was there a point for you where you recognize that and you're like, well, you know, the, the child sexual abuse happened, the rape happened, the domestic violence happened, but that's not me. That's what happened. I'm still trying to, tell myself that, you know, because that inner voice creeps up and, 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 and tries to rob my, my, my joy and my peace. And, and that's the way trauma works is that the voice may never go away, right? You may constantly be in situations where you feel triggered, but where the secret lies is how long you choose to suffer. And, and it's recognizing that at some point, it's no longer automatic, it's a choice. And when you realize that it's your choice, that's when a trigger comes and you tell yourself, okay, I, I feel this, but this is not who I am. And now instead of suffering for, let's say a month, you're only suffering for a week because by the end of the week, you're like, okay. You know, that's not true to who I am. So let me focus on the present moment awareness, right? This is power of being present. And then you're able to kind of get back to shining again, get back to you. But what happens when a week is too long to lose, when a month is too long to lose, and you realize that you're never going to get that time back, that time that you spend suffering about this past moment that no longer exists, you're able to allow that thought to leave just as quickly as it comes. And now you suffered for five seconds or five minutes instead of a week or a month. You're like, wow. And then you do that more often. So now you're like, okay, yeah, I'm triggered, but I'm able to say it and allow it to leave instead of letting it linger. That's healing. Mm, Yeah, it makes so much sense. So I have, gosh, I have so many more questions. (laughs) You know the audiences are going to enjoy this because we're we're having a ball over here. (laughs) Yeah, I guess um, I'm just going to throw some quick questions at you and see what you make of them, okay? Why not? So you mentioned that there were some warning signs or red flags prior to the relationships that you had that were either with the narcissist or turned into domestic violence. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those were and um, how it was that you kind of didn't recognize them at the time? Hmm. So 
I mentioned, a li- I'm going to bring it back a little bit to, to kind of put it into perspective. I mentioned the fact that my father was my savior and my protector. But what I didn't mention, maybe, or maybe I did, I don't know. I'll say it again. He was very much emotionally unavailable. By that, I mean that while he was physically there, he wasn't emotionally tending to me and what I needed emotionally to feel loved and 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 heard. So inevitably, I ended up getting into a situation where I was in a relationship with an older man, old enough to be my father, and seeking that validation from this person made it so this person was able to use many things against me. Like, you're never going to find somebody that's going to love you like I love you. Um, I, I taught you this and I taught you that and I introduced you to this and I taking all of my power. And it was a situation in which that was that suffocating feeling that I had. And that was that discomfort that I had. And what happened is, is that first it was this, this isolation because everyone else can see the red flags, but it couldn't be that everyone else was right. It had to be me and him against the world. So he first isolated me from my family. And in doing so, it made it easier to manipulate me. And because I had already dealt with other toxic situations, including the fact that I was with a narcissist prior to that, and I was very open, I'm an open person about what I had experienced, it was a perfect um, weapon that he can now use against me. And so I would say some of the red flags included isolation, taking my power by saying, you owe me for this and I did this and I, and, and if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be who you are, right? And then another way in which he took my power was sexually. He would use that against me in a way that I wouldn't be able to. So I'll, I'll give an example. Um, he started exposing me to different forms of, of, of sexual experimentation, which included what I now classify as mild BDSM. BDSM stands for, do you know what it stands for? Um, I bondage, uh, sadism, sadism, something like, yes, 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 yes. So in in a relationship, when you think about mild forms of BDSM, that's such as, you know, blindfolding and, and, and handcuffing and, and those type of things. And around that time, it was the Fifty Shades of Grey book. I don't know if you remember that book, but that book is, is yeah, it's part of the culprit. But yeah, so it was in a culture where all of these things are considered, quote unquote, this new normal, and it is okay to be in these vulnerable situations, these powerless situations. And he exposed me to these things where ultimately I'm powerless. 
And he is 100% in control of the situation. And now you're calling it, you know, something that it's not. I'm assuming that he was the person who was doing all the binding and, and the restricting, and you were the one on the receiving end all the time, that he wasn't ever in that role of being powerless and helpless and sort of surrendered. Absolutely not. Figures. Yes. So, but in those situations, what happens is you have someone who suffers from trauma, someone who has given away my power in many different instances in my life. So feeling powerless is normal to me, right? So I'm not recognizing that as, oh my God, this is, there's something wrong here. So I'm in a situation where my past makes it so I'm even an easier target for a situation like this. And not to mention the culture and the book and all that stuff as well. But now you have a situation where a person is already narcissistic, is already very much like needing to control in that, in that scenario where he has the ultimate power. What it does to a person's fantasy, like their mind, their, the, where their mind goes, I now realize that that was definitely a red flag. And the moment that I came back, oh, I remember the moment I came back from that vacation with my mother, which I had referred to before, I knew enough was enough. I was not going to continue in this relationship anymore because it was suffocating. It was very much, it took away all of my power. And when I came back, I had this level of clarity because again, I hit that reflect, refine, and now I'm refreshing. And I'm like, okay, you see clearer now, enough is enough. So I come back and things are different for me. I've been a little bit like, I guess for me as a woman, saying no was not something that came easy to me. So breaking up with somebody is similar to saying no. So it was kind of like, I'll wait until he gives me a reason to break up with him because he's going to give me many reasons because he's always, you know, doing something real crazy and ridiculous and, and just out of line. So a reason will come, but I'm just no longer in this like spell, like the spell is broken. I'm over it and I'm ready to move on with my life, but I still don't have the right words to be able to say, I deserve better. I'm done with you. But I felt that way. So I half the battle was there. I at least I at least knew that I felt that way. So I was get, making progress. So he presented me with the opportunity to break up with him because he was acting crazy again. And I was like, yes, this is my out. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm done. And, and I break up with this person. But now that this person lost control over me, now that this person no longer can control me, that's when his true colors came out. And that's when I'm simply, you know, at work. And then one of my coworkers has a situation where we're, Hey, we're going to go out for drinks after work. I say, okay. And this person shows up where I was. And then it turned into a physical altercation. 
And then he followed me home. And then that's when he came in through my window and assaulted me. It was a situation where because I was already done with the situation, it was easy for me to walk away from. Easy for me to walk away from, I say, because it only happened that one time. It happened twice because it happened earlier in the night and then when he came over. But um, but I was able to call the police, go to court the next Monday, get the restraining order. I didn't feel safe any longer where I lived. But it was a situation in which had I not had that time to breathe and reflect on what was going on, I may have continued to be in this situation with this person that I may not have had the courage or the words to be able to get out of it. Yes. And things could have continued to go further down that path and you might never have been able to get out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why it is so hard to say no? Like, and how. Like consent can be such a fuzzy concept. Like it shouldn't be, (laughs) but apparently it is. It's kind of a confusing thing, especially, you know, what what you've described is is sort of the insidious way that your experiences sort of infused the relationships that kind of came along afterwards. And I, I think that what you were just talking about, about how hard it was to even sort of take a stand and end the relationship without kind of waiting for an excuse to do it. This sort of hints at a really good example of how hard it is to set a boundary and to say no to somebody. And especially people who are not predisposed to actually listen to or hear or accept a boundary or a no. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? It's a very loaded question. <laughs> Feel free to say no. No, I'm not going <laughs> to say no. Not when the not not when I need to speak up. <laughs> People need to hear this. People need to hear this. So I'm so glad that you asked that question because I was raped twice and I had no idea that I was raped. That's insane. And the reason why I'm saying that, and I'm saying it in a way that I kind of want to take you there and then bring you back to the moment to help understand kind of the how and the why that happens. And I'm sure there are other women that are in scenarios or situations where they're also very much confused as to like, what happened here? What happened here? The first time it was an experience in which I, I needed an escape because I was <laughs> vacation tends to be my 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 breather to reflect, refine, and refresh. And at the time I was eight months pregnant with my my second child, which was with the narcissist, but my second child. And during that pregnancy, I experienced so much so much like violence and 
trauma and like heartache. And it was just a lot. So I was also in my last year of nursing school. So with it being, you know, so critical for me to graduate and dealing with this toxic relationship, I didn't actually have any time to breathe. I just held my breath for the entire pregnancy. So it was time for me to breathe and figure out like where I was going, what was going on with me. So I go on my little vacation um, to Dominican Republic. And at the time it was hurricane season. And I was staying alone at my mom's house because she was, she was out of town for some time. I was, it was me, my, my son, who was about six months old. And then he was probably about, actually, no, he was, he was about a year old and, and my, um, my pregnant belly. This guy comes by my house. He's just walking by and he's a familiar face because he's a friend of, he's a, he's a, friend of a family friend. So he was like a person who was somehow intertwined. Like I I knew of this person and he walks by and he sees me out there on the front porch with my child and just, I'm sitting there on the rocking chair and he starts talking to me and fine, normal conversation, but he just keeps talking and talking and talking. And I wasn't, going to be rude and say, you know what, you should go. Cause again, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to reject somebody. I didn't know how to just be like, okay, enough is enough. Like, and it was awkward to the point where I was just like, okay, well, and especially in Dominican Republic, we have these bars on the window. I mean, on, not on the windows on the, the, like everything's made with bars. So it's like, he's on the other side of the bar. I'm on the inside. So it feels like jail. I'm like, okay, well just come inside and just sit down and, and just, so this is awkward. Cause you're just standing there. And I didn't realize that that initial invitation, just by my inability to say, okay, the conversation lasted long enough. I don't have anything like I I didn't even like, I, I no longer want this conversation. It's time for you to go. I was setting myself up for further and further and further and further violations to my inner space because of my inability to reject somebody and say, I no longer want this conversation. I no longer want this, 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 whatever's going on. I mentioned that it was hurricane season. So what happened was, is that this person realized that one, I was alone. This person also realized that I was very much in a space where I needed this refuge. So I was, I was going through some stuff and now I was coming here for this because I'm, I'm an open person and I share a little bit too much. So then he started coming by every day and he would come with gifts. He would come with avocados. Like, oh, I have avocados from my backyard. Oh, great. I love avocados. Great. And then the rain would come and he was like, well, I can't leave because it's raining. In my mind, I'm like, what are you going to melt? I don't care. Go home. <laughs> like enough is enough. Like you came by now, now go home. He wouldn't leave. And he just, and each time I tried to say it in a nice way, like, hey, you know, it's getting late. Like, well, you know, like you should probably maybe, you know, and, and many different ways I tried to say like, okay, you should really leave and nothing, nothing, nothing. I didn't want to go to sleep with this person in my house because I don't know you. 
sure you've been coming over for the past, let's say four days or so. I don't know how long, how many days it was, but it was much, it was definitely not something that I was like, Hey, come back tomorrow. Hey, like, like I was polite, but I wasn't direct. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And here we are late at night. And all we're doing is talking. So I'm setting myself up by sharing more than this person is worthy of even receiving simply because I can't go to sleep. And I'm not even enjoying these conversations. I'm not even in a situation where I'm even remotely entertained by it. I'm just really annoyed. by the fact that you're still in my presence, even though in five different ways, I was like, you know, you should really go. And the rain doesn't stop. So then what this person does is he leans in and he rubs my belly. I don't know if you remember, I was eight months pregnant. He rubs my belly. And in that moment, I began to cry. Because that was the first time in that entire pregnancy that I had experienced touch, a positive touch in the way that I was just experienced violence and heartache and trauma and all of those things. So I began to cry. And there are different types of cry. The type of cry that I had in this moment was that cry where you're literally melting. Like you're so like out of control of your body that you're literally just like, you have no words. It's just like tears are flowing. You can't even control it. And I was melting. And this person held me, brought me into the room and had sex with me in that very moment. I couldn't even say no. I had no words. All I had was tears. I cried from the moment he touched me to the moment he left. But because I didn't say no, I was confused and thought that I asked for that. Hmm. What an amazing story of somebody grooming you. And taking advantage of you at your most vulnerable moment to get what he wanted. Yeah. And I think your experience of trying so many different ways to politely set a boundary and kind of put an end to things is something that a lot of women will relate to. I certainly have have done the same thing. And it's it's funny, I don't know if you ever listened to a podcast called My Favorite Murder. No, I haven't. I'll write it down though. It's a true crime podcast uh, hosted by two women who are extremely funny, which sounds like a weird combination, but one of, you know, they have a lot of little sayings and memes that have come out of it because they're always talking about self-defense and safety related things. And they finally came up with this hashtag that was fuck politeness because that to be polite is what gets us into trouble so many times. And that fear of being seen as rude or sexist or racist or offensive or hysterical or overreacting or, you know, all of that stuff is what drives us 
to try very politely to set a boundary that a lot of people will just totally disregard. Yeah. So you didn't have a way to give a strong no then. So I don't know, did you ever have any contact with him after that? And was he aware that kind of trans or was everything with him? Oh my gosh, it got worse. <laughs> it was the worst vacation ever. So then my mom comes back from out of town and this person comes back and starts to infiltrate himself in my entire family as if we're like a couple. So I no longer want to see his face, but now he's trying to win the hearts of everyone in my family. And I'm no, he's not wanted here. Can he leave? No, no. Oh my God. It was a mess. And he would keep coming back and everyone's like, but he's so nice. What? What? No. And um, to make it, (laughs) to make it comical, there was a situation where it was like two nights before it's time to go. And I have had a very miserable time. And finally, I'm like, you know what, mommy, we're going out dancing. Like, I want to go out dancing. I need to have a good time because I need to like do something positive in this vacation. And this lovely person decides to invite himself out dancing with me. And my family, great. It's like a leech. You can't even get rid of him, right? He goes out with us that night. I was determined to have a good time. So I ended up dancing, even though I was very, very uncomfortable with the whole idea. And this person just wouldn't go away. And then I came home and he didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay the night. Because it was late. And what happened was, is that we almost got mugged while we were out. We almost got robbed. So the people who almost robbed us ended up following us home. So now he was playing this quote unquote protective role. Like, I'm not going to leave you guys because I want to make sure that you're safe. Right. So he would use all of these ridiculous things to make it so that it was okay for him to just continue to be in my presence, which I was very annoyed by. But I was like, whatever, sleep on the floor. Like I was pissed because he was just not going to leave. And his girlfriend comes to my house, banging on the door, banging on the window, calling for him to come outside. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I said, well, you'd be damned. I said, okay, (laughs) get out of my house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he didn't want to leave because he didn't want her to know that he was there. <laughs> right. <laughs> I said, I, this, this is just, you can't make this up. I said, you can't make this up. I said, this is, just, this is special. This is what, what, a, what a trip. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> See, the thing is though, you know, if right up front you had said, Hey, you know, I'm glad you stopped by go ahead. You know, I don't really want to continue this relationship, even if it's just a talking one, just, you know, please don't come back. You would have been labeled as being a bitch, you know, a rude, offensive, obnoxious bitch. And there would have been all kinds of repercussions because of that. And so he actually played it extremely well. You know, it's a very insidious form of manipulation in a way, coupled with that that thing that so many of us have as women of just not wanting, not wanting two things, not wanting to 
be rude and offensive, but also not wanting to do something that is going to piss that person off so that they do something worse. Yeah. I think that in the beginning, if something feels off, unleash that inner bitch. That's what I say. Let her out early. Yeah. Because <laughs> it will avoid a whole lot of stuff moving forward. Because if if the the theme of that, I mean the the lesson in that story was I should have unleashed the inner bitch from the from day one. Maybe that maybe mm-hmm. would have never came back. And you know, I'm I'm also the type of person that I understand and respect the process. Everything happens for a reason, and it makes for a good laugh now. Now we can laugh about it. In the moment, absolutely not. But it's a situation in which I say to anybody who's in an uncomfortable situation, be bold and and be a bitch early. Because later on, what it does is it sets up the precedent for kind of what happens afterwards. And it literally started with just that one very unwanted but awkward invitation because of the inability to be like okay I'm done (laughs) right and I mean unfortunately this is what predatory people do is they will sort of interview you they will see how far they can go before they actually get a response from you you know so they they do little tests to see well you know, if I do this, is she going to allow that? You know, if I do this, is she going to you know, slap me in the face or is she going to tell me to get the fuck out or, you know, well, she didn't, she didn't stop me here. So I wonder if I can do this. And it's a really subtle process if you, if you aren't aware that that is actually what they're doing, you know, so they do a lot of the testing of the waters. And if you're on the receiving end and if you're a trusting person, or like you mentioned before, like a people-pleasing person, it can be really, really hard to let that inner bitch out, <laughs> you know, to release the crack and then just say, no, hang on, no, uh, because it is kind of like a dance where they have a goal and you have a goal. And sometimes they just kind of fit in a way that turns out to be really bad for you. You know, your goal is kind of to preserve the peace and not cause a scene and, you know, to not piss anybody off. And their goal is to take it as far as they possibly can with you without getting caught or hurt, you know, without anybody finding out. And, um, you know, it can end up with something like what you experienced that really was not good for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, gosh, I have so many more questions for you, but I think I'm just going to have to have you come back because I would like to talk about Reiki. I would like to talk about forgiveness and grief and dealing with a narcissist and manifesting and overcoming fear. But we've actually been talking for quite a while, so (laughs) we'll save for another day. And uh, I have just one more question before we wrap it up. Perfect. I've had so much fun, really. Well, thank you again for just like really laying it all out there. I, I imagine it is not easy to talk about, but it's so important to hear. And, and you're so articulate about not just your thoughts, but your emotions and, and drawing the connections. So it's, it's really fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm, I know when I listen back to this, I'm going to, oh, I, that's another thing I need to really think about because it's very thought provoking and in a little bit, in, in some ways it's, it's kind of stimulating me to want to learn more 
about some of these topics because uh, I'm realizing how ignorant I truly am. So here is my last question. How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Mm. I would say speaking up, speaking up, having those courageous conversations is the first and I think the best key to truly overcoming what initially starts with that like it's 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 what that violation took from you it took your voice so being able to speak up is the anecdote it's the opposite of that so if ever you feel uncomfortable if ever you you have something that you've experienced let it out let it out in a way that it frees you from the bondage of it being repeated in your head over and over and over again. Speak out in writing. It could be your own personal journal. You could write a book. You could share it with your therapist. You could share it with your partner. You could just let it out. Because one of the biggest things that I have experienced in terms of the prolonged suffering is just keeping it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, the holding in the secret, protecting the secret and silencing your own voice. And yeah, that is what disempowers you. So it makes absolute sense to me that really allowing yourself to express whatever that happens to be that bubbles up. Um is really a way of reclaiming that power. And I, I really appreciate that you said like, you don't have to share it with anybody if you don't want to, you know, keep it between you and the page if you want, or you and a therapist or, you know, but, but give voice to it finally and, and stop holding it in, in your own container. Exactly. I love that. Thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating conversation and I am so grateful that you were able to come on the show today and just really take a deep dive into what it really is like as a human being to experience deep trauma that has lasting effects, but doesn't have to actually be the thing that defines who you are. And I love that you've taken all of this lived experience and that you're now turning it around to help other women because unfortunately, there are so many of us who have had experiences you know, on that whole spectrum of violence and abuse. And we do get into those places of feeling hopeless and powerless and like we can't go on. And so what you're doing is really shining that light of hope out there to say, listen, girl, I have been through the shit and you may be going through it too. And there's a way out and there's a wonderful, wonderful life on the other side. Exactly. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Alba. Can I actually share? I have, I, I just had a birthday just a few, a little while ago. And I decided that in, in, in the spirit of giving, I wanted to give away a gift. So I'm going to have a, a contest on my Instagram page 
which includes being able to give away free access to two participants who partake in the contest on my Instagram account. There's going to be access to a book club that I'm doing. I'm doing group coaching in a form of a book club. So one of the many tips that I have learned in terms of my healing is the power of books, the power of music, the power of therapy. So I wanted to be able to give back by sharing this gift with whoever wins this, this, this lucky prize. So specifically for women, especially women who have suffered from any type of trauma, it doesn't have to be sexual. It could be physical, but I'm doing a book club called Sacred Woman, which is about healing the mind, body, and spirit. So if anyone wants to partake, I would invite them to come on to my Instagram page, which is Alba Soto TLC. I also have my website, which is albasototlc.com. So if anyone wants to go on there and check out my blog, where I'm journaling out loud for the whole world to hear, which has been really healing for me, as well as my my Facebook page as well, which is Alba Cordero Soto. So if anyone wants to partake in the contest to win one of the two um, access to the book club by Sacred Woman, they can go ahead and, and go on my Instagram and partake in the in the journey. And also if they go on my website and subscribe to the newsletter, I'm actually working on writing a book. So as soon as that book is ready, it's called Fire Starters. And it's about being the spark of change that you want to see in the world, the spark of hope. I'm so glad you said that because I totally spaced out <laughs> ask you to share how people can connect with you and where you are in the world. So thank you for... <laughs> jumping in and doing that because I totally, totally forgot. We will links to all of those in the show notes. And I also just want you to talk just a second about your vision for a community because I know that's really important and it sounds damn good to me. So can you just share a little bit about that too? Absolutely. So I have Better Together Sister Circle and what it is is that we are all whole, but we are better when we uplift each other, when we validate each other, when we encourage one another. So I have this, this group coaching in a form of a better together sister circle, which allows us to just be in a space where we can be loving and non-judgmental to one another, where I'm able to provide group coaching at a more affordable, as opposed to the one-on-one, -on -one. it's um, a little bit more accessible to many different women that may be able to benefit from being in a group where they're around other people who have experienced similar situations and hold space for the healing process to to continue and to and to happen. Oh, that's great. And when you first told me about that, I think the languaging that you used about it was a sacred space to connect with other spirited, resilient women who are ready to move towards a life that is free of shame, guilt, and anger. And that just to me was like just an instant, like, oh, yes, juicy, awesome space. So I really wanted that um, we shared about that too, because that, that's just, I love that. So yes, yes, yes. Well, this has been the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. 
You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.